Good, good afternoon, uh, Excellencies. Uh, thank you very much for make, making the time out of your very busy schedules to, to join us uh, and accept our invitation. Uh, this lunch was originally scheduled for earlier this summer, but uh, uh, someone with a far higher pay grade and rank than me summoned uh, uh, all of you to the uh, State Department that day, so uh, uh, we had to cancel, And but we're very delighted to be able to reschedule. And again, our appreciation to our, our friends from Levick for joining us in this endeavor, uh, but to all of you for making, making the time. Uh, as you know, we, we're beginning this period, and we're well into this crazy season, which seems to start earlier and earlier every cycle uh, in the United States of our own presidential campaigns. Uh, there are moments when I wonder uh, what right as an American we have to go around giving lessons on the subject to other people, given some of the antics we see in our own. Uh, but it's an important time, and it's an important time, I fundamentally believe, also for you as part of your missions uh, to engage uh, with the, whoever it is that will, uh, in January 2017, uh, begin the new administration here in the United States for your own countries. Uh, and it's important engagement, and that's why we thought this would be helpful uh, as part of our service and dialogue with the African Diplomatic Corps here in Washington. Uh, so thank you for joining us for this, and I won't take any more of your time. And before uh, introducing uh, our two uh, speakers today in the style who tee us up for this dialogue, I'd like to uh, pass the, uh, the word just briefly to my good friend and, and your uh, chair of your group, uh, uh, Ambassador Michael Musa Adamo of the Gabonese Republic. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. I'm honored to be here. I'm the current chair of the African Ambassadors Group. We're delighted and honored to be here. This is a very, very good and excellent initiative that we're waiting for. Uh, we'd like to know more about the processes, and we're eager to engage. We're eager to see who we are going to be, whose administration we're going to be working with comes January 2017. Uh, so are we. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Power Africa was an excellent and outstanding uh, initiative by the current administration to bring electricity to Africa. What's been lacking as far as we're concerned as African ambassadors is the political leg of power Africa. We'd like to see Africa powered politically. We think that we don't have the political cloud that we deserve in Washington as a continent, as different countries. We can do a comparison with other part of the the world and all the continents of all the countries that do not have the size of Africa or the population of Africa that have more political clout in Washington. So ours is to learn, to understand, and to see how we can work with any administration that the American people will have elected into really increasing the political clout that Africa uh, is to have, directly to have in Washington. So we we're willing to hear from you. We're willing to we are going to engage directly with you, and we get to learn and understand. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Uh, the in the interest of uh, full full disclosure, what uh, here I should say uh, when it comes to campaigns in Africa, uh, I'm happy to convene this meeting, and the Atlantic Council, of course, is uh, 
nonpartisan, although I think it's no secret in this town where my personal politics are, uh, although my advice on campaigns may be uh, to be avoided. I, I, I led the, uh, I was Senator McCain's senior advisor for African development issues in 2008, and we know how that campaign ended. And then I co-chaired uh, Mitt Romney's Africa Working Group in 2012, so I don't have a stellar track record personally uh, uh, on the matter, but uh, delighted to have uh, two people. And th this time around, I've not endorsed anyone uh, in the cyber cycle. Uh, I do learn lessons, if nothing else. But uh, the uh, I've included, by the way, of interest, uh, a copy of the chapter I wrote in a book that was just published last week. Uh, choosing to lead American foreign policy for a disordered world. A bipartisan group of policy experts laid out a strategy uh, for various regions of the world, and I wrote the Africa chapter, and I include that just for, for your reference. I don't think I, uh, anyone here has any cause for complaint against me. Uh, uh, some of your colleagues may, but I don't think anyone here does. Uh, but it's a very uh, great pleasure now really to turn the floor to the two people you came to hear. Uh, to good friends uh, from Levick, uh, both executive vice presidents at Levick. Uh, Lanny Davis, I think, needs no introduction. Close, uh, longtime friend uh, of the Clintons, special counsel to President Clinton at the White House. Uh, very familiar to everyone in 2008 uh, for his many appearances uh, on behalf of, on in media on behalf of uh, then Senator. Uh, Hillary Rodham Clinton in her first run for the presidency, and I'm sure we'll see much more of Lanny uh, in the coming uh, uh, 18 months or, or so in a similar capacity. He writes a weekly column on politics in The Hill and certainly uh, one of the uh, outstanding spokesmen on, for that candidate and that side of the aisle. Uh, uh, Connie Mack, former congressman, Republican from Florida, uh, uh, good friend and supporter and uh, uh, of uh, Governor Jeb Bush and son of uh, the other senator, uh, Senator Connie Mack, and on, familiar also with Africa from his uh, work chairing the International Conservation uh, Caucus as well. Uh, so both uh, people who know the campaigns well, know the leading candidates in this cycle well, and know both parties and their uh, processes and to a certain extent their pathologies uh, well. So without further ado, uh, Lanny and Connie, turn it over to you. I asked Connie to go first so I could shoot at him after he spoke, but he wants me to go first. So. Uh, Connie and I are uh, from the opposite sides of the political aisle, Republican and Democrat. Uh, he's a conservative, I'm a liberal. Uh, he's wrong about almost everything, but uh, he's my friend. That's a great endorsement. <laughs> <laughs> and he will tell you that he doesn't want me to tell his friends on the conservative Republican side of the aisle that we agree on anything, so I always say he's wrong on everything. But uh, one of the uh, uh, opening uh, messages that I will get back to is that uh, being friends is not the same as agreeing politically. And people who fail to distinguish uh, personal from political make a very big mistake. And we Americans may preach to others, uh, whether it's Africa, Asia, or Europe, uh, that lesson. But we're not very good at following that advice. Before I begin my um, comments as to the presidential campaign and how 
uh, all of you as ambassadors uh, might be more effective in communicating all the great things there, there are in Africa about your countries, because that's what Levick does. I would like to introduce the man whose name is Levick. Uh, without him, I would not uh, be associated with this great company. I am a, a country lawyer from Washington. I've practiced uh, law for 40 years. Uh, but I entered the realm of media and strategic communications and now digital uh, communications uh, because I knew that in order to be effective in solving people's problems in Washington, I couldn't just be a lawyer. I had to understand Congress and communicate with members of Congress on both sides of the aisle, uh, as Connie will tell you when he speaks how we first met, and also in the media, which affects Congress and affects the American people, which then bubbles up and affects Congress. So it all intersects, and we'll talk about uh, our uh, experiences uh, in Washington, in not only governments, but clients being more effective in communicating in Washington to get uh, support and even assistance. But before I begin my remarks, let me first um, uh, thank uh, Michael, there you are. Uh, Musa Adamo for his leadership of this group and for helping to assemble all of you. Thank you, Michael, Mr. Ambassador. And um, personal uh, thanks for being here as one of my favorite ambassadors in the history of America, Ambassador Mark Ginsburg, who um, uh, not only uh, has been my friend for many years, uh, but did a fantastic job in Morocco and uh, a close personal friend of both uh, President and Mrs. Clinton. So Mark Ginsburg is a good-looking man over there. And then uh, because he has to leave right away, and he's got the uh, right to leave early because he's got very, uh, several appointments, but he, he is the man who, uh, whose name is Levick. And thanks to uh, Richard Levick, another friend from years ago, I am now part of the great Levick strategic communications company. I would like just, Richard, if you wouldn't mind saying a few words, which would be something less than one hour. Is that possible? <laughs> well, thank you. First of all, it's a great honor to be here. Dr. Pham, thank you so much. I, I'm usually seated between the two of you, but I think that you're going to behave today. Um, I, I think Connie said it all when he said, we really don't know what's going to happen next uh, and who will be the next president of the United States. But one thing is certain, that there is the opportunity for interest for countries to have outsized influence within Washington. But it takes what Lanny was talking about, the extraordinary coordination, both of the, the domestic and foreign politics that we all understand so well, but also the communication skills uh, and what we call the grassroots all coming together to have an influence. And with that, I turn it over to my two dear friends. So my theme is uh, whether it's Africa, Asia, Europe, it doesn't matter. To be effective in Washington, uh, you have to distinguish the personal from the political and be able to talk to both sides of the aisles and have a message and a strategy for accomplishing what you want, whether it's for your countries, uh, individual projects, or anything that you have uh, that's important to you and your people. And I'd like to start out with uh, an anecdote that involves a friend of mine from college who was my fraternity brother, which is a social organization 
we call ourselves brothers. In those days, there were no sisters because I went to Yale College when it was all male. Before, thankfully, it is now uh, co-educational male and female. And right across the hall from me was uh, somebody who became a close friend. We lived in the same small residential college community in Yale University. And then he became president of the fraternity, and I voted for him as president. And now, um, more than 50 years later, George W. Bush became president for two terms and governor for two terms. And we remained friends throughout to the point where my 10-year-old son, now 17, this is my second family, by the way, if you're looking at my age, I have two older children and six grandchildren, a 17-year-old and a 10-year-old. Now, that's a long story I won't go into. <laughs> but my 17-year-old, when he was 10, came to me one day and said, Dad, I know about you being friends with Hillary uh, from law school, which is true. When I knew Hillary, her last name was Rodham. It's before she met her future husband. Then when she introduced me to her future husband, because I stayed on after graduation in New Haven, Connecticut, uh, she said, he's going to be president someday. And I said to her, well, maybe that's so, because he was very impressive, but you're going to be president before him. Little did I know that she was actually going to marry the guy, <laughs> change her last name, and wait for him to be president. So now I believe she will be our next president. Connie will respectfully disagree. But the point of my story about George W. Bush is that our politics couldn't be any different. Yet when my son came to me and said, Dad, my friends don't think it's possible for you to be friends with President Bush, who's a Republican, and President Clinton, who's a Democrat. And I said, well, first of all, you shouldn't be bragging. And his friends were giving him a hard time. And he was tearful when he said this to me. And he said, he really started to cry. You mean it's not true, Dad? So now I was challenged. <laughs> the next day I came to the office. I called the White House, not having been there for some time since President Clinton had left. And I got through to President Bush's personal secretary, and I told her the story. My 10-year-old son, Josh, President Bush knew I had a second family. Uh, he wants to have it be proven that I can be friends with George Bush and Bill Clinton. He doesn't think it's possible. Uh, so I said, maybe like on the last week when President Bush is about to leave the White House, this was 2008, so it was the last year, maybe like in January of 2009, right before the inauguration, when all the boxes are packed. And I remember as President Clinton was leaving, everybody was kind of ignoring him because he was already out the door. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe he could invite my 10-year-old son into the Oval Office, give him the thrill of meeting a president, but most importantly, to communicate the ability to be friends, even if you differ politically. So she said, well, I'll call you back. He's very busy. I don't think maybe not possible. Five minutes later, my assistant comes running into my office. It's President Bush's office on the phone. I picked up the phone. Uh, and it was Karl Rove, his political advisor. Lanny, you're not going to believe this. President Bush would like to see you and Josh right now. <laughs> I said, right now? You mean like he's in school out in Maryland? and Doesn't the president have anything better to do right now? He, he thinks it's important. 
So we pulled Josh out of school the next morning, 10 years old. The Secret Service agent comes into the lobby of the West Wing, points at Josh, you Josh Davis? Of course, Josh sees the Secret Service badge and he's a little nervous, 10 years old. And he says, you come with me. And he points to my wife and I, you guys, you stay here. <laughs> so when he goes down the hallway, I see President Bush leaning out of the Oval Office, waving at me, I wave back, and Josh walks in. About 25 minutes later, the Secret Service agent comes out and says, President Bush now wants to see both of you. As we walk down the hallway of the West Wing, President Bush comes out of the office, Oval Office, and he says, take a look at your son. We walk in the door, there is my son sitting behind the desk on the telephone. <laughs> I thought he was ordering a nuclear attack, but that moment symbolized for me that it, in the words of Bill Clinton, when he came to the White House for the portrait investiture where the official portraits of prior presidents are put on the walls of the White House for he and First Lady, Mrs. Clinton. And he was so moved by the kind words that President Bush said in this room filled with people. Mark, I don't know if you were there. It's in the East Room on a beautiful spring day, 2004. And President Bush thanked him for coming back to the White House. And President Clinton said, you know, President Bush, Americans ought to see that it's possible to say someone is right or wrong without saying they're good or evil. So back to the subject at hand. Uh, this is a very hard fought presidential campaign. Africa is watching. Europe and Asia, people all over the planet are watching. How do we conduct ourselves? Do we have the ability to fight hard and lose and hand off power to the other party, to our opposition, peacefully, with grace, with dignity? Peter, you work for John McCain, who I happen to know as well, not very well, but I know him. On the night that he lost to Barack Obama, I, if the, oops, I'm sorry, everyone. If the whole world wasn't watching, they should have, because John McCain said to Barack Obama and to all Republicans who had fought so hard, now it's time to unite. Now we have one president for all the people. And that is really, uh, I hope, the message that you and your governments are communicating here in Washington and uh, to all of the media, which will shape opinions about your country. And what I do with uh, the Levick organization is communication and knowing who to communicate with and how to communicate on social media, on American media in places that matter, not just mass media, but the kind of media that follows what's happening in Africa, the great resources in your country. The greatest resource of all are your people, your natural resources. Everything about your countries have such a favorable narrative that can be articulated here in Washington. But it can't be articulated through waiting for the media to tell your story. It's got to be articulated with a strategy, with people who can help you deliver the message. And I can't tell you how important it is, the most important message of all, is that in American politics and in the politics of your countries, it is possible to fight it out and still, at the end of the contest, 
come together as a nation and do what is best for your people. So that is my opening introduction. I hope in we reserve most of our time today to answer your questions, especially I would love to answer your question about will Hillary Clinton be the nominee? How's Bernie Sanders doing? What about Joe Biden? I'm going to be on CNN tonight answering a few questions. You can watch me at uh, what time, Eleanor? Maybe about 10 o'clock, something like that. But I'm on a lot because I'm Hillary's friend and that's not part of her campaign. I'm just her friend. So please ask us questions about your own issues in your countries about the presidential campaign. But now I'd like to uh, leave the uh, floor and turn it over. I yield, as Connie would say, as a member of Congress, I yield my time to Connie Mack, my friend, uh, and also a very good Republican. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, thank you so much for this opportunity, uh, for inviting us. and. Uh, for a dialogue that I think uh, can be very meaningful. So I, I, we do really uh, appreciate this opportunity. Uh, and I thank all of you for, for being here. And I, I think you can tell um, that uh, we've got a, a good relationship, but if, if you can't, let me make sure that I put the uh, icing on the cake on this one. So <clears throat> uh, I grew up in a household that uh, had been involved in politics uh, for a long time. My Father was a member of Congress in 1982, and then in 1988 became senator uh, until 2000. Uh, and before that, my great-great-grandfather from Texas was a member of the Senate, um, and then uh, another relative in Texas was a member of the Congress. So uh, politics has been around in our family for a long time. Um, and our, and I, the reason that I bring this up is I remember uh, through watching my father um, having sort of the same questions I think your son had is how can you be, you know, how can you be friends with Democrats? I mean, all they're doing is beating you up every day. And, you know, so as a, as a candidate, um, I mean, you get the, you know, what beat out of you as a candidate. Uh, both sides are fighting it out. Um, and my father explained to me that um, he looked at it as a play, that if you, if you tried to picture a, a campaign sort of in the idea of a play where everybody has their part, right? So you're going to have people in a play that are the villain. You're going to have, you're going to have all of these things. So if you stop thinking about it as personal and that it is more about trying to win an election, um, then you can separate what someone may have said uh, in a newspaper article or on TV or those types of things. Um, and so I carried that uh, through in my uh, time in, in elected office. And um, one of the first things I did when I got to the Congress was to, of course, reach out to my colleagues on the right, but also to reach out to my colleagues on the left. Uh, really, you and this comes a little bit from my state legislative days when, in the state legislature, it's not as, um, it's not as separated, right? You spend a lot more time working together. Debates on the floor actually matter. You know, people are listening and they could change their vote. So you really get a, 
you really get an opportunity to work together. And I found in the state legislature, I worked best on getting things done, working with my friends on, on the left. Uh, and so, and I think more and more members are starting to do that, trying to figure out a way to keep those lines of communications open. Before um, Newt Gingrich became speaker, uh, and then even during his speakership a little bit, but before that, the tradition in the House uh, was that you fight it out on the floor, but then everybody goes and has dinner and together or goes down to the local watering hole and has a drink together. This was, a, and it was left and right. Everyone came together and you got to know about people's families. You got to know about um, what's important to them on a personal level instead of just what is said on the floor or they you might see on on TV. And when I came in, none of that was happening. Um, very little time to interact. One of the things that I think in hindsight uh, was counterproductive. Um, when Newt became speaker, there was a, it turned the election cycle into pretty much a 24 hour a day, 365 days. So everybody would leave on a Thursday night, go back to their districts, campaign, come back on Monday. And that's how we were going to win, take over the majority. And that's how we were. But what happened is it's, it really has sort of divided. So you think about a, a member of Congress, they fly in on a on a Monday or a Tuesday night for votes, for their bed check votes, uh, you have three votes uh, that night, and then you leave on Thursday evening or Friday morning. There's no time to get to know one another personally. And I think that is one of the biggest things missing from what's happening in the United States in our political system. When elected officials get elected, there's no time to get to know each other. If you don't go back to your district, an opponent, whichever one pops up from your own party, from the other party, is going to use that against you. Um, and so everybody runs for the hills. Uh, I real quick want to tell you about uh, how I got to, to meet Lanny. Um, and I, I think this is a, a funny story. It might make me look bad a little bit, but what the hell? I'm not elected anymore. I can tell you. So uh, I was the chair. I was the chair of the Western Hemisphere uh, Subcommittee on Foreign Affairs, and there was an issue uh, in uh, one of the Latin American countries in Honduras. Um, I was the ranking. No, I was the ranking member at this time. I was the and Elliot Engel uh, was the chair, and Lanny was a witness. So, you know, we get the notice and, and we see in my office, we see he's on there and I was like, oh, yeah, this is going to be good. I mean, there, there's just so much to talk about with Lanny, his history. There's just, you know, we were we were being petty, looking for things that we could really kind of go after him and try to impeach his testimony. Um, and... Uh, I think, now I don't think we said hello at the beginning, but um, we did our formalities and then Lanny gives his opening statement. And while he's giving his opening statement, I'm looking at my notes like, oh yeah, man, I'm going to sock it to this guy. <laughs> he gave his opening statement and I, I sort of sunk my head and I went, oh shit, I 
I actually agree with this guy. <laughs> He's right. Um, and threw away all of that and immediately focused on Lanny and said, tell me more about your, you know, your opening statement. What do you, and then afterwards, um, uh, we said hello. And I said, uh, I said, look, you should come by the office. We should get to know each other. And, uh, it would be, it would be a good thing. And, and he did. A Democrat. Uh, yeah. Uh, and then, uh, and then, so I invited him to the Capitol Hill club. You all know what the Capitol Hill club is. It's the Republican sort of, um, place where we go and eat and socialize and, you know, that type of thing. It's kind of a Republican club. Um, and I said, Lanny, why don't you come to the Capitol Hill club with me? And he's like, really? I said, uh, yeah, I think we should, you know, and he goes, that, you know, it might not work out for you. I mean, if, if you're seen with me down there, uh, they might, they might not uh, like you anymore. And I said, well, I'm not sure they like me anyways, uh, but that's not the point. I think it's important that we can do this as friends. We can disagree and on policy, uh, but we can, we can come together as friends. And we did, we went to the Capitol Hill club and there Lanny and it was sitting and I could see him sort of <laughs> waiting for something to happen. And, uh, we, we had a great time. Um, more of that needs to happen, not only in Washington DC, but all over, uh, the globe, uh, in politics, you have to learn how to take something that is um, can be very divisive, but when that battle is over, that both sides, Senator McCain's, you know, Senator McCain has a, a great reputation for being a tough guy, but also a very fair guy. Um, so he's, I think, a good example of how you can stand on your principles and what you believe in, but you can also uh, reach out and work across the aisle and communicate to a country that now it's time to unite. So I, I began by saying that I learned a lot from my father and the story that uh, you told about your son. I remember I was uh, at home, uh, I think I was in college, and uh, I think at this time it was maybe uh, President Clinton had either had can't or his mother and my dad picked up the phone and called just to see how he was doing and to um, let him know that as a family we were praying for him and uh, just wanted to let him know that people were thinking about him and I remember thinking are you allowed to do that I'm in college I should know um, but it was an important lesson for me too, that, um, those, those things matter, reaching out, remembering that we're all humans, um, remembering that everybody has challenges in their life and that, uh, whatever might be involved in the politics of the day, do not trump, um, and I don't, pardon the pun, uh, That'll sink in in a minute. That was really funny, actually. <laughs> uh, that we all we all got to find a way to come together. There is in this chaos. There are uh, a lot of opportunities uh, for countries to engage. 
uh, you have many people from your country living here. Um, you also have something, something that people, uh, you know, aspire to and want to be a part of. Africa is one of those places in this day and age where people see a lot of great hope and a lot of opportunity. Uh, and, uh, and I think there's a, there's a connection, whether it be through conservation type issues or whatnot, but there's a connection and these don't have to be left or right. Um, and in a lot of cases, they're not. Those are opportunities you want to look for, as Lanny was saying earlier, to find a way to take an issue that might not, you know, might not be zeroed in on exactly what it is you're trying to accomplish, but using that as a way to build a foundation, build a base of support, uh, develop a message that can be delivered both Republicans and Democrats, and engaging the population that's here uh, in that process. You know, one of the things that, that we talk about doing, and frankly, the reason that I, I came to Levick was um, in the world of lobbying, uh, the days used to be where it was all about sort of the connections that you know and who you can get in to see and the idea being, well, if you know them, then they're going to do what you ask them to do. Well, the, those days are over. And a lot of the uh, lobbying sort of PR shops really focused on that. And I, I always believe that the best way to get to communicate and get um, a member or a group of members or the Congress uh, to act is when you combine those personal relationships with uh, including a local population, um, maybe working through a foundation and all working, delivering the same message. And uh, so by the time someone like Lanny or I go into a meeting, they're already familiar with it. They already know what it's not a it's not the first thing first time they've heard about it uh, and they're interested they might disagree when you walk in they might but at least you begin a conversation where people are paying attention uh, and not just having a meeting to have a meeting um, so I, I look forward to the discussion because I think that's where we can really get into the nuts and bolts and clearly Lanny was wrong when he said that Hillary Clinton was going to be the next president. <laughs> we all know that it'll be Jeb Bush. <laughs> um, uh, but no, in all, all seriousness, uh, I do want to just, if I could, one more second. Uh, I had a chance on a number of occasions to meet uh, Secretary Clinton. And I remember sitting in uh, a room, and it was again on a trip, and I was, I think, again, the only Republican. Um, and I remember saying to uh, her that uh, I thanked her for her engagement uh, and her willingness to be accessible. I may not have had that same experience with Condoleezza Rice, 
Um, I may have spoken up a little too much in this meeting uh, because then I felt the hands of, well, I don't know what, but the person behind me who was a longtime State Department who was there with Condoleezza Rice and knew exactly what I was talking about. And um, my point is that Hillary Clinton, the, the right is going to say all kinds of things about her. Right? Um, and, so they're just, and, they're, and they're just not true. She's a hardworking, very smart and capable person to be president of the United States. And I think Lanny and I both agree that what would be fantastic for this country is if the two of them can rise to be the nominee, that we will have, both of them will want to focus on issues and less about the personal attacks and elevate the debate. And that would be good for all of America to get into that. And I think hopefully that's what we'll get. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, uh, Connie, and thank you, Lanny, for that opening up. And let me just uh, make the observation that all of you, in a way, have an easier task because, uh, from my experience, Africa is not a partisan topic in this town. It's it's something where we enjoy broadly support from both sides of the aisle uh, uh, for Africa as a whole and for individual countries. And if I could throw in just one ago for opening to questions, uh, several years ago, before Ambassador Girma came here, there was a hearing on Ethiopia. And at that time, I lived in New York, and I testified at the hearing. And afterwards, after the hearing, uh, Congressman Chuck Rangel, from, and he knew I lived in New York. In fact, we went to the same tailor. Although I say the tailor said uh, we shop from different books in the uh, uh, color palettes. Called me over and he said, "How are you getting back to New York?" I said, "I'm taking the train." I said, "He said, how are you getting there?" And I said, "Probably going to grab a cab as you know as soon as I leave here." He says, "Not after what you said. You're not going to get picked up by a cab in this town." <laughs> uh, 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 so he said. Uh, ride with me. So we, we rode together to uh, Union Station and took the train back up to New York because you know I, I would either uh, have a difficult time getting a cab or two if I got one there's a strong possibility I would be abused and route to the, uh, the train station. Uh, but uh, anyway opening up to questions and comments uh, please excellencies. Ambassador. Uh, my name is Mathilde and uh, I, I really enjoyed your presentations both, and what I specifically uh, enjoyed was the fact that people were able to work both on the other side and, and maintain the friendship even when politically you are far off. Um, the, my question is pretty broad, uh, and I ask both of you, and you can maybe address, is uh, Africa, and for us, like what, uh, Dr. Peter Farm just said, we work with all the administrations. I can tell you, for instance, what President Clinton has done incredibly well in, in, uh, in, on our continent with his uh, initiative, what President Bush has done with PEPFAR, and what President Obama has done in the latest years uh, to address. So it has been coming, but like what our uh, chair was saying, is that we still lack a certain political leverage so uh, number one, my question is, um, what do you see, both administration, maybe you can uh, add whatever, what can they do to increase that? We, uh, the, the frustration 
maybe for me is that sometimes when the people think about African issues, it becomes like one country. There is no context. And sometimes we see it, whether it's in the Senate or Congress or even presidential uh, thing, that whatever is taking place here should also be adapted immediately in African countries without looking at context and what is taking place in those countries. I like the fact that we're talking about even the evolution in, uh, in those relationships prior to now. So it evolved even in, in more advanced nation. So what I'm saying is, what is going to come really to show a certain partnership, not just you know, a big brother who will come and, and tell us what will happen in politics, uh, like it happens all the time, but really come as partners as Africa. Because if anything, at this point in Africa, we are acknowledging that we might be less developed, but we have a leverage in what we can, we can offer. It's not really uh, this nation bringing stuff to us, there are stuff we give to this nation. So it means that to do it, we have to be more equalitarian. There's a, a, a proverb in Kinyarwanda that said that unequal arms cannot embrace. And it pretty much that's what happened whenever we negotiate on many different things. And I would like to have your feelings about how it's going to be improved on our side when it's a democratic uh, presidential candidate or a Republican. Thank you. Uh, uh, Excellencies, before letting them answer, uh, just to qualify, uh, the, uh, the, the discussion, anything anyone says here is, is off the record, so okay. you're, you're all feel confident. And that also protects oh. Connie from having his comment about uh, uh, former Secretary Clinton you invoked against him uh, uh, during the campaign. Much worse would be uh, my saying nice things about him, that's off the record, you heard it. Um, if I may try first, and uh, Eleanor McManus is not here, uh, we'll, we'll tell you that, and Olga, uh, thank you for all your work. Uh, I believe that every country is different, and Americans have a stereotype that Africa is one country. And the stereotype, uh, meaning a cartoon character that isn't reality, is uninformed. We. Uh, do not know enough about individual African countries, individual cultures, individual stories about your people. And to do better in Washington and for us to do better in your countries as the American people want to do better in Africa. I listened one night to my old friend and now uh, post-president Bill Clinton talk about not how much he loves Africa, but how much he loves Africans, the people, the differences in countries. The, he told me about being thrilled. Thrilled was the word he used. When he found himself on his hands and knees in a hundred degree heat in the middle of a field, watching uh, what he described as a very old woman planting seeds <coughs> using the water and fertilizer and techniques that he and his organization, the Clinton Foundation, were responsible for. But that wasn't what he wanted me to understand. He wanted me to understand the, because he knows that I 
I'm in the business of communication. That's what I do. I'm a lawyer associated with the communications company. He said, Lanny, you need to tell the story of individual people and individual countries in Africa. There are a thousand stories in Rwanda, in Senegal. He went through one country at a time to convince me it isn't about Africa, it's about individual cultures, histories, resources, people, stories, mothers, fathers, children. So he wanted me to be, I said, that's what makes you so effective. That's how you got elected president twice. You look at somebody and when he talks to you, there's nobody else in the room. I don't know if you've had the experience of talking to President Clinton. He wanted me to focus on Africa by focusing on individual people and getting to understand the stories of each country and each person and each family. So my message really to all of you is absolutely correct. This has to be a partnership. Mathilde, may I call you? Mathilde, yeah, please. It's got to be a partnership where the communication goes both ways. And I have to say that as a pretty informed American, I read, meet newspapers and internet and I'm pretty well informed about Africa and African countries. I am uninformed because each of you in this room could tell me more about your countries, about your people, about your problems, about your successes, and that you need uh, help maybe in communicating in a special way to American media or to American policymakers. But I know you have great stories to tell. You just have to tell them with people who are receptive and people who will listen. And based upon President Clinton's uh, comments to me, we are very receptive to the great stories uh, North Africa, South Africa, Central Africa, it doesn't matter. We are all receptive as Americans all over the world to people, to their stories, to their narrative. So I don't know, kind of. Yeah, thank you. Uh, and thanks for the question. I'm going to come at this uh, ultimately getting to where I think Lanny is, but I wouldn't run from the idea that people, uh, there's an association and just said, you know, Africa is just Africa. I think it's in a lot of places there is opportunity in that. Um, and so I, I think like you all are here today, part of this group, there's a lot of good that comes from that. It, it, it's a lot of strength. It, there are things that you can do together to improve your voice uh, and deliver a message in Congress, so I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go away from that. But then you have, then you have to figure out how can you take that sort of um, overall message and individualize it. Uh, and if you use the power of of all of you uh, together, and then you're able to also have a different set of maybe issues in each country, you're, you're absolutely right that when Americans think and talk about any one of your countries, they would almost always refer to in Africa. Um, so, uh, you know, finding a way to distinguish yourself is, is also important. 
but I wouldn't, but I would do it as much as you can collectively because it does add strength. Um, I think one of the biggest things that, uh, that you all can do is get more people to from, if, if the target market audience in this case is members of Congress and the Senate and, and you've got to get more and more of them there. Uh, there a transformation happens in people when they can see with their own eyes and, and feel it. Um, the story becomes less about, in their mind, in Africa, and they talk about their specific trip where they met amazing people and uh, had a human experience that is much different than just a place. I also think that um, I mentioned it earlier, you know, getting people in this country who are tied to your countries involved in the process is very, very important. Um, they can reinforce in a very strong way the messages that you're trying to convey on the Hill. And so uh, first knowing who they are, you know, building up an active community, finding out where they're located and getting them in, engaged in the process um, where they live is a really strong way to deliver a message uh, in Washington that can then grow. Um, did I answer? Yes. Ambassador okay. Germa. Thank you, Peter, and uh, thank you for organizing this uh, very productive and useful meeting. Um, Sorry for the beatings you receive from time to time for <laughs> taking the position you feel right. This is this is a, a reflection of the lack of uh, democracy enough. They are uh, trying to penalize you for the views you take, and which is your uh, right at any rate. And uh, I would like to thank the speakers also for the excellent good relationship they have among themselves that has been a very good lesson for us. My, I, I would like just to ask two things for a lesson. Uh, I would like to know first how different is the campaign we see now, at least at early stage, how different it is from the campaigns you know before, meaning the campaign of uh, four years before, or a campaign before that, if there is any different thing you will see today, and the reason why it's different. And uh, the, the second one is, uh, I am honestly impressed by the relationship that has been developed between the two of you, which we lack very much in Africa. And I just would like to know here, if this is uh, more a rule than exception in the relationship between the two parties. If it's a rule, it's, uh, it's very exciting. So that's why maybe you have a national consensus in your country towards taking your country forward. If it's uh, an exception, then why would not this exception grow to the others so that they see themselves the way you do? 
So sometimes a very tense relationship could be reduced. I always let Lana go first. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, there's uh, not that much different, uh, but I've never seen anything like uh, Donald Trump before in American politics. Um, he may or may not be the beginning of something that's different. Uh, I think it's bad because it represents the personalization, demonization, demonizing people who disagree with you. It's what President Clinton warned against. Don't say someone is good or evil. Say you disagree. So on the Republican side, I'm going to let Connie deal with the Donald Trump, different than anybody else running, and different than anyone I can ever remember in all of my history in American politics, which goes back to my teen years, which is about a half a century. On the Democratic side, it's very familiar. We have left, which is our base, uh, as the Republican Party. Is a conservative party? We're a liberal party. The difference in those two terms, who knows? Uh, we Democrats believe in government, believe in taxing people to pay for services, and we believe in the private marketplace being regulated. We also share a lot of Republican concerns about each of those things. But that's what makes me a liberal. Franklin Roosevelt was my father's hero, and he believed in all those things. Uh, my father uh, uh, would say in every presidential election that I can remember, you're not allowed to use the hate word in this house. My father was for every liberal Democrat in every contest. Uh, the only time he told me he was going to make an exception on the Democratic Party side was 1960, when the most liberal part of our party, Eleanor Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt's widow, led a movement to renominate Adlai Stevenson, the most liberal candidate who had lost twice to President Eisenhower. And most of the, quote, liberal base, the left of our party was for Adlai Stevenson. My father saw this man, John Kennedy, and he said to me, he's your future because young people are going to look at him and identify with him. Now, fast forward to 2008. My oldest son, who's a very famous television celebrity, does television for college basketball is on CBS. His name's Seth Davis. So if you Google his name, you'll see that he's much more famous than his father. Called me one day being raised in a house of the Clintons. My friends, like family. Dad, I'm going to be for Barack Obama. I said, okay, but as long as you keep it quiet. <laughs> and I want to tell Hillary first. Dad, I love Hillary Clinton. I love Bill Clinton. I was raised in a home loving both Clintons. But Barack Obama speaks to my generation. So uh, then he calls me several weeks later. Dad, I have some very bad news for you. Uh, only bad news when you hear from your, your child is health. What's the matter? Oh, I'm OK, Dad. But CBS television just issued a press release that I've endorsed Barack Obama, which is so funny because of Father Lanny. I said, oh my God, why would they do that? How could you let that happen, Seth? I haven't told Hillary. Sorry, Dad, I didn't even know. 
And I know the media is going to start calling you, asking you, what do you have to say about your own son being Barack Obama? <laughs> this is doing the very, very uh, angry at sometimes, bitter at sometimes, contest between Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. So there's nothing I could do. And then the Wall Street Journal called me maybe five minutes later. It was already out on the wire services. Seth Davis, son of, endorses Barack Obama. And I have to decide, do I take a shot at my son and say he's completely wrong? No, I'm not going to do this. I love this boy with all my heart, and he is a good boy. He's now 46 years old with three grandchildren, and he's still a good boy. So I wrote out my sentence, and I'm telling you this story because it summarizes what I'm about to say about today's campaign with Bernie Sanders, and I think probably Vice President Biden, that's mine. I wrote out the following sentence, and I knew I would only do this once. I had to love my son, but I had to communicate to everyone what I felt about Hillary Clinton. Now, how do I do that? So I wrote it out, and I said to the Wall Street Journal reporter, and I didn't repeat it to anyone else, because once it was there, I knew I would refer everybody to the comment. I said exactly these words. I've always taught my son to be completely independent of his father and to make his own political judgments, period. So the reporter said to me, is that it? She was disappointed, that's all. I said, no, I have one other sentence. I told him all that, but I didn't think he'd believe me literally. <laughs> she said, that's great. He put the comment out. My son Seth called me back. What you think, Seth? Dad, you're the master of the soundbite. That was great. <laughs> Everyone at CBS says, your father is the best. He found a way to negotiate that. And then five minutes later, 10 minutes later, my assistant comes into the office. It's Hillary on the phone. It's Hillary on the phone. <laughs> so I'm trepidatious, because I have told you. I don't know, Mark, whether I ever told you this full story. But I pick up the phone, waiting to hear the music. And I start to say, oh, Hillary, I'm so, I'm about to say sorry. And she says, stop. I just want you to know that was a great quote. I just read your quote. I said, oh, thank you, Hillary. I'm so glad you like it. And then she said, and listen to me. All my friends are going through the same thing. <laughs> because there was a generational divide. It was not about race. It was not about religion. It was about generations. And my son wanted somebody who he identified with, who he thought was cool but who represented change. So now let's very quickly, in 60 seconds, I promise. Hillary Clinton, Bernie Sanders, and Joe Biden agree on 95% of all issues. And the 5% where they disagree, it will be agreeable. There will be no personal attacks. There will be no venom. Their supporters may get carried away. That is always the case. But the three of them are friends. They respect each other. And you'll see a debate that will be at a very high level. And then as soon as the debate is over, all the supporters will be out gunning at each other. That happens. So we Democrats have a very minor problem. We have to get through these primaries and overcome all the enthusiasm or sometimes negative energy of the supporters. But we'll come through it and we'll be unified. Just as Hillary Clinton took the podium in 2008, and said, we are now all one family. Now let's all work for Barack Obama, which I did. And to the great pleasure of my son, <clears throat> I did.
And uh, to the great pride of America, we elected this man twice. So, now that's my story. I do, before I turn it over to Connie, I want to tell you that my friendship with George Bush has been an amazing phenomenon to watch Bill Clinton become close friends with President Bush. And I mean close friends more than anybody realizes. Even when President Bush was president and President Clinton was out of the White House, they spoke regularly and became friends. And you all probably know, and I'm telling you, it's for real, the love that President Clinton has for President Bush one, President George Bush, W. Bush's father. So that being the case, I do think Jeb Bush would be the most difficult for the Democrats to defeat, by far. <laughs> because he's a decent, honorable, kind, good-hearted man. I disagree with him on most issues. Uh, I once said that on television, and President Bush, my old friend from Yale, said, would you do me a favor and stop saying such nice things about my brother? <laughs> but Connie can speak to the Republican side in my own sense that what is very different, which I've never seen before, is this Donald Trump uh, phenomenon that is so vicious towards his fellow Republicans. Forget about what he says about Hillary Clinton, which is awful. It's personal, it's venomous, it's vitriol, it's ugly, it's scary. And the fact that he's leading in the polls, I believe, is short-lived, and that most Republicans will learn this is not what we want as our leader. But I'm going to let Connie comment on the Republicans. <laughs> At the end of the day, I believe Hillary Clinton will be the nominee uh, because she has the broadest base of support. Uh, I think the left will support her. I think moderate to conservative Democrats, such as they might be, will come together and we'll have a unified party. But I do believe if the Republicans get over this Trump craziness, and are smart enough to nominate Jeb Bush or John Kasich of Ohio or somebody else we definitely fear running against. Uh, those are the two most formidable candidates for us. So I go out of my way to say nice things about both of them on television to hurt their campaign. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for uh, let me, letting me talk about the Republicans, even though I think he just did. <laughs> um, so uh, the the first part of the question is what's how are these campaigns uh, different and what's the same? Um, and I can't help but to sort of uh, I view it in two different ways. On one hand, there's no difference. It's so. All of the candidates, all of the campaigns, not just in this presidential election, but in the last one and the one before that and the one before that. I mean, you know, some the way you deliver a message might be different. So, you know, the, with the internet and social media and those types of things. Oh, I thought you were asking. I'm raising my hand. Okay. <laughs> okay. Art <laughs> um, is different, but uh, but the it's it really is the same. So what are, what are the candidates trying to do? They're trying to do, if you think about it, exactly what it is that you're trying to do. Although you would never use the tactics that they, that they use. And that is to differentiate themselves. Um, so in a Republican primary, they all want to be known and seen as the Republican, uh, you know, sort of carrying the torch. Uh, but also point out the differences, what makes them better, 
in some cases, why the other candidate uh, is not, should not get worthy of people's votes. So that part is the same. I think that the um, sophistication that has, the, with technology and sort of the sophistication of the campaigns um, has changed so much in the last eight years uh, and maybe even 15 years or so that, um, and it is true that the Democrats have, I'll say mastered that. They have uh, invested a lot of time and energy on uh, how to identify, connect, and deliver votes. And on the Republican side, we're still in that age of, well, if we got a, a message that works, that you know, we should win. Um, and it doesn't work like that. Uh, people are hearing, I mean, you know, the 24-hour news cycle. Um, we've all got these things that we carry around that disrupt us every day, every minute of the day. And people are getting their information in a different way. I think one of the things that made, um, well, I can, I can speak uh, from experience. Uh, in 2012, I was running for the United States Senate. Um, and so there are certain norms that you know, and as you get closer to the election, you start calculating like, where are you, where are you? And one of the first things for Republicans is we win the early voting. In the state of Florida, we win the early voting. So when the numbers came in, uh, the first batch of numbers on early voting came in, I knew there was a problem. The, uh, uh, the Democrats had beat us for the first time at getting people to vote early. Uh, and I, we were hoping that that was a fluke. It wasn't. Uh, we saw that trend continue all the way. And the reason is, is they have developed a way to get people to vote. Uh, and re we are still, Republicans are still uh, years, uh, uh, multiple election cycles away from catching up on that part. So I think it, it's, they're the same, but the, the techniques of a campaign are different. In terms of remaining loyal to the core values of the parties, that's what I want to know. Uh, for instance, when it comes to the Republicans, so yeah, let me, yeah, are they remaining at least loyal to the core values of the party. So, so what's interesting about that is uh, yes and no. <laughs> um, on the Republican side, we've got a field that is really some major differences between some of the candidates. Um, I will say right now that I do not like Donald Trump. I think he's an embarrassment. Uh, not only to the Republican Party, but to our country. I think he, what he says and how he acts and the way he does it is everything against what I, what I aspired to be when watching my father and watching other, other people. Um, we teach our children at a young age not to be like him. 
Um, <laughs> That's very true. And the the way you know, uh, the way that he, the words that he uses, the the way he attacks people because they have a different opinion, um, is embarrassing. And now, can he win the primary? And if you believe uh, Forbes and he's got you know billions of dollars and he's willing to to pay, maybe. Um, but I doubt it because at the end of the day, in the Republican Party, you have uh, people who are really fed up with Washington. They are. Uh, they believe that come election day that they are relied on to help elect somebody, but then when they get elected, they go to Washington and forget. This is the whole sort of divide with the Tea Party uh, side of the, of the party and then the more, um, a little farther to the center. They, that frustration I think is what we're seeing in the polls. So they all probably at one point wanted to say to a member of Congress, to a candidate, call them all kinds of names, right? That frustration lives in, in, the, in the primary voters on the right. But when it comes down, and you're seeing it now, Trump's numbers are coming, when you, when you get time to like, who do you want to be the leader of the party? Who do you want to be the, the person out front? Trump's numbers go down and the others come up. And then you have somebody like um, Rand Paul. He has a view of foreign policy that's different than almost all of them. So you couldn't, I could not make the state make the statement that the Republican candidates ninety five agree on ninety five percent of the issues. It just isn't the way it is. Then you have uh, people like Jeb Bush, who a more traditional. Uh, viewpoint, a more traditional um, conservative type of, of look forward, um, but who doesn't support an idea just because that's what everybody else is supporting. He, he's willing to take a stand on issues that might cut the grain in, the, in our own party, whether it be immigration or Common Core. Um, and to me, uh, I like that. Right, so this is a guy that thinks for himself, that he um, is willing to take a stand, even if he knows it's going to hurt him. He'll he'll take that stand, and we need more people like that in politics. We need people who are going to say, "Let's see, I could say this and be a crowd pleaser, but that is not what I believe, or I can tell people what I believe." And so, I think you have three distinct different groups in the uh, in the battle. Uh, at the end of the day, um, I support Jeb, uh, and he's got what it takes where he could be very easily be the nominee. Um, if he starts to move up in the polls, uh, I'm pretty sure the our friends on the left, regardless of where he is in that standing, will start to either love him to death or pounding them to death. <laughs> and then uh, just on the last, is this the exception or the rule? Yes. Unfortunately, it is an exception um, these days. And it hasn't always been that way. 
So it used to be the rule. Um, and I think the, the sort of changes in, the, in how mostly Congress operates has created a lot of the tension and less of the ability, as I mentioned earlier, to come together and get to know one another. Uh, you know, I remember dad uh, telling stories about they would fight it out on the floor and then they'd go to like the Hawk and Dove with, uh, you know, it'd be um, uh, Newt Gingrich, my father, uh, Tip O'Neill. Uh, so both sides and they would have fun with each other. Um, they get to know about their, their lives and that is, that doesn't happen anymore unless you go on a, on a CODEL. It's the only place you get to know your colleagues. Uh, and that's why I think that that aspect is so important for all of you individually and collectively. Just get those people to go out and get to know each other. Why don't we take them as a, as a, as a round and then, and then give you a chance to address them. So we start on this side and we'll go around. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah, that's what we're doing. Thank you very much. Foreign policy is is not the the um, visibility of foreign policy as a concept it appears to be drowned by issues of national security. Therefore, uh, in national, in other words, anything else is foreign policy is is is, is, a, is both an argument and practice diminishes very significantly and does having implications on, on um, the attitudes of the, um, the, the, you know, the two uh, parties towards Africa. And how, how unless therefore in, in Africa, if, if there is an element of national, there is a coincidence of your country and an element of national security, then there is a possibility of disappearing completely from, from the radar of political debate. How can you therefore, in those circumstances, raise the, the you know the profile of an issue which is not a national security concern to the various groups. I wanted to I wanted to just at, at what point are we likely to see um, the the real issues exercising the minds of of, of um, you know of the campaign to the extent where the current trends of uh, anger now disappearing. And we see maybe the emergence of uh, either uh, Rubio uh, or, or, or George Bush as the candidate of the uh, of the uh, uh, the Republicans, and and uh, Hillary Clinton as the, the you know the, the the candidate. At what point, either in timing or under what circumstances? Thank you. So I think uh, so, what. Thank you, uh, Peter. Mine is a very brief question. Say the uh, primaries are done, and then two candidates emerge, one from the Democrats, one from the Republicans. For Republican, they go now for a general vote. The public has got to vote for a president. Do you normally find a situation where a number of voters who would have voted a Republican candidate changes their mind to vote for a Democrat candidate, or vice versa. Democrat candidate, I mean public, voters changing their mind, voting 
for the Republican and, and why? It's a great question. Division in voting when they've actually placed these people. Can, can, can you explain that to me? Pastor Oliver. Uh, thank you, Dr. Peter, and thank you for this great opportunity. Um, a woman president for a country, America for that matter. <laughs> How is it perceived here? I mean, here, among many issues, there is, for example, Equal pay, you don't have equal pay for women for the same job. In Uganda, we as women, we are looking for opportunity. We need equal opportunity, but we get the same pay for the same job. So the issue here. I'm just mentioning one. So the, the, the fact that you have the possibility of a woman president, does that have does it say anything at all to, to, to the Americans? And secondly, the, the women constituency, does it emerge how, how women are, are, are looking at this opportunity that they can have a woman president? I mean, if it happened in Uganda, it would be great news. We had the vice president, and it was wonderful. <laughs> Thank you for that question. Yeah, yeah that is I was just about to tell her that in Senegal, if you have uh, a list for parliament, if you don't have the same number of men and women, your list is refused. So, something different. Yeah. My, my question is I mean, I will drive you back in Africa. Um, my president, President Sall in Senegal, was the mediator in the recent crisis. We had him in Burkina Faso. And his main worry was that, I mean, he met everybody, social service, civil society, political parties, parliament politicians. And his main worry was that they all stuck in the old days. They all pro and anti sankar That's really the big problem in this society in, in Burkina Faso. What I know here, you have had big crisis, we have, we have in the civil war, secession war, but maybe you, you, did you succeed in bridging the gap? If, if yes, how could that help really with that issue we have in the Thank you. I'd like to see one more. Thank you. The, uh, my colleague Kroy has given you one good landing, one good uh, campaign argument. Uh, you can use it and say that the U.S. is behind Africa on that matter. We have had women as president, whereas the United States is still yet. By, by the said way, that. I think that I think that would be a good idea. I, good idea. Idea. <laughs> I do. Regardless of which party wins, in Africa, Africans we are comfortable in working with the American people choice. We find that they always have the name, but there are no issues with that. We be the right or the left, they all been to Africa. Mine is to say that, uh, to engage you, I need your input in telling us what would be the best way to build political cloud in Washington. I'll give you an example. Size-wise, <coughs> even with an African-American president, we don't have 1% of the political cloud. If you do a comparative analysis, that Israel has for us as America. 
how do we as African ambassador work into what would be the strategy to build that kind of political cloud that Israel has? A single country with 8.7 million people, Africa 1.2 billion people, 54 countries, we don't have 1% of the cloud that Israel has. How do we work in, with any administration to build that kind of cloud? So, first, and, and, and to conclude my question also is to say also that uh, we don't have a say in the political procedural uh, uh, system here. Uh, you can see that the West meaning Europe and America, the former colonizing countries, have a strong implication into our political processes. That kind of uh, a strong perceived, real or perceived influence in our political process that one does not see in Latin America or in Asia. How do we work on it? Because one of the challenges that we have here is one of perception in touch. Right. So I'm going to suggest a process for answering all your questions. First of all, every one of you have thanked us, and I know I speak for kind. I am literally almost uh, speechless. That's never happened to me before. <laughs> at how grateful I am to hear your comments and your questions and to be here. And, and learning is a lot of what I'm going through here. So thank you. I, I would like to suggest to my colleague that we'll, we'll, we'll each take an, a different question. <coughs> I know it's impossible for Connie to do this, but we'll both keep it short. <laughs> Does it's, anyone it's, here think I'm the one that has <laughs> <laughs> Ask my children. You know, they'll agree with Connie. So, uh, no, honestly, I, I'll, I'll try to take the first one. Or maybe, if you don't mind, Connie, foreign policy um, and national security, yeah. you take the first we'll, one. We'll do that, but I, and I, will be, but I want to comment on the other one, because these are no, great questions. We'll so both just, uh, very no, quick, how, no, we'll how both quickly comment. do it. We'll both okay. comment, but we'll keep it brief, because so these the, are fantastic questions. So the question the was uh, about uh, when do we start getting to uh, the real issues? Foreign policy and national security. Right. Um, that won't happen until the uh, there's a nominee in each party because uh, the issues that you're talking about are not going to be the driving issues <coughs> in the primary um, at least not in this election doesn't mean that in future elections it'd be different but in this one so it's it's going to happen when there's a uh, a party that's, or when there's a candidate for both parties, and we believe and hope it's Hillary and Jeb, um, then you'll get to the real debate. It's not just security, but what other things are important as a country, and what does that foreign policy mean in places like the continent of Africa? <laughs> and to add to that, the issue of national security, as a way of talking about foreign policy, is the one place where there is consensus between the parties. Not all the candidates you see, but the broad consensus, left and right, Democrats and Republicans, are between the words engagement and disengagement. So if you consider American politics as a football field or as a center of the field, there's the 50-yard lines, 100 yards. Between the 20-yard lines, 20 to 50, 20 to 50, 
there is a broad consensus in this country that we must engage. We must engage with Africa. We must engage with the world. We cannot build the barriers of protection on economic trade. We cannot ignore our, our involvement in the world because it's in our national security interest to do so. So you will find when there are nominees who are one step away from the presidency, they will be, I believe, engagement Democratic and Republican leaders. We cannot shut ourselves off from the world when there's a great movement on the left and the right to do that. Where the left and the right come together is a form of isolationism that goes back to the 1930s where we didn't want to be involved in World War II. So I think that's your answer on foreign policy engagement. As Connie just said, it will happen when there are nominees and we're talking about engagement, but how to engage will be the debate. I'll take, we'll, we'll just keep going like this. Okay, so uh, the, the, the switching of votes. That's a great um, It is so, okay, so let me first uh, go this way. In, uh, in my first election for Congress, um, there were 450,000 people uh, registered to vote. And that is sort of how, when, when districts are drawn, it's based upon a, a, a number, population. So the, you try to divide the state up in an in a equal way. Um, there were 200 and some of those were Republicans. And then the rest, or not the rest, but then you have people who are independent, or they, but the majority was there. In the primary election that really in this district determined who was going to be the member of Congress, only 36,000 showed up. Um, and not one of those in the primary was someone who was switching. Then when you get to the general, again, the numbers are really depressing. Uh, when you think about this great responsibility uh, that people have towards in the election process and, uh, and how much or how little they participate. Um, so when you get to the presidential level, the two sides, by the time you get there, are fighting over maybe 5% of voters. Because the uh, Republicans most likely are going to vote Republican. It, you could almost make it like a Newton law, right? What goes up must come down. I mean, Republicans are going to vote Republican. Democrats are going to vote Democrat. Um, but there is this place in the middle. Some are identified with one party or some with another or maybe independent. And there's a little bit of movement back and forth. But you'll see as the election gets closer that the candidates, they won't be talking where they, how they got to the general election. They're going to be talking to those people in the center because that's where people in the center, 5% or so, and get out the vote. Um, but 
used to do a lot of town hall meetings. And every town hall meeting, someone would stand up, raise their hand, and said, I voted for you. I contributed to your father. I contributed to you. And then they would yell at me about something. And, you know, in, I don't know how it is in your countries, but in America, the we know who's registered to vote. You know, you can look it up. And so I would have my staff. <laughs> and then we're, we'd be able to say, I'm sorry, sir. Uh, you have never contributed to me. You've never contributed to my father. <laughs> and you are registered, but as a Democrat. <laughs> and so, you know, um, the, the point is, is that there's very little switching. Um, but that 5% in the middle, some are, some consider themselves Democrats, some consider themselves, but some are independent. But that is where the election for president typically. Yeah. So I just completely agree with embarrassment. I will say I have only voted for one Republican in my life. <laughs> and my father yelled at me for doing that. We have a great party loyalty that's ideologically based. I'm a liberal Democrat and a Republican who isn't a liberal Republican, I wouldn't consider. I vote for Connie Mack. That's an exception. <laughs> but I will say this. Uh, the big battle is in the center-right, center-left. Unfortunately, it's narrower and narrower than it ever was. And Connie's about right. Again, I look at a football field that's 100 yards long. And uh, the 45-yard line is five yards from the 50 <clears throat> on each side. That's 10%. That's where the election is decided after the nominations. It's very sad to say that because we shouldn't be so partisan and so loyal to our party. We all say, I vote for the person, not the party. But we have loyalty to a party because of its philosophy and its ideology. And that's a reality of American life. But don't forget that 10% can switch back and forth. And right now we're about a 50-50 country. Even Barack Obama won by a big margin in 2012 one by 6%. Remember that football field? That's very close to the fifth yard. Okay, now I get the next one. Okay. And uh, that is, uh, thank goodness I picked it this way so I could talk to you a little bit. <laughs> so um, I may surprise you by what I'm about to say. Hillary Clinton will not be elected president because she's a woman. Women resent that argument. My wife is my one person focus group. She's not as political as I am. Nobody could be. And she resents when I say it's ridiculous that we're the only democracy in the Western world, meaning Western democracies, Europe and America, and most of Asia. has never elected a female president. Pakistan elected a female president. <coughs> so I say that, and my wife resents that. Why? Have you used the word qualified? Don't patronize me. So... I always say Hillary Clinton is the most qualified candidate to be president, and she happens to be a woman. Then my wife says, okay. <laughs> um, so uh, I'll first try to answer it this way. Um, uh, again, being in the Congress and uh, now President Obama was elected, and I remember going out uh, to the swearing-in and stand, or sitting up, uh, up there freezing cold, but really feeling 
proud that uh, as a country uh, we elected the first uh, black president in our country. And uh, all of the rest of the politics just seemed to leave at that moment. And you couldn't help but to feel a sense of pride. And I think that that would be the same thing for Hillary. Uh, if she became the president, uh, then I think there would be a real pride that that that's sort of a symbol that we're evolving and progressing. Um, uh, when you were asking the question, and then even listening to Lanny, I and I don't, don't mean this in a bad way at all, but I don't see her as a woman. I mean, I, I don't mean that like, you know, that, that way. I see her as a candidate that is running for president and uh, but that, frankly, on some things I've agreed with her on and others I haven't um, and have had the opportunity to meet her a number of times. And But I don't see her that way. I see her as another candidate. Um, but I do think it would be big, a big statement if she were to become president and it would say a lot about kind of America moving forward, coming back to some of the other questions when we get there. So I think Ebola and bridging of the gap is your question. Uh, bridging the... Oh, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> the, the, just on this. So, um, there is, you know, uh, there is still resentment um, on both. You take an issue uh, that divided this country in the Civil War or a lot of other uh, ways uh, that there's been division. And that, that they do exist. It, it doesn't just go away. But I think um, the way that our leaders in the past I still, I think the generation that we're in now is going to, there's going to be a question mark on this, but in the past, there was a really, there was a strong nationalistic idea that uh, instead of having a king or queen, uh, that people would be elected, parties, the parties would switch, go back and forth. And there was this idea of a peaceful uh, transition of power, uh, and, and 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 honestly, it's, it was the losing candidate in almost all of these scenarios that was the one that had the most profound uh, impact on that by getting up and saying, uh, whether it's in a primary fight or or McCain and the general election. And it happens on both sides, but the, the idea that after a campaign that the two sides come together, internally the parties come together, um, I think that leadership early on is what really helped to sort of bridge that gap. But I wouldn't necessarily, I mean, it, there's still a gap. I mean, it's, it's still there. It's just now we can sort of jump over it. You know, instead of falling in falling in the middle, uh, and it takes real courage and political uh, leadership. Uh, you know, 
the idea that uh, uh, so in my Senate race, um, uh, Bill Nelson beat me by I don't know 15 points. I mean, he just crushed me. Mm -hmm. And some of the ads that he ran against me, my friends and my family are so upset about. I'm, I'm not that upset about it. Um, I was, uh, after the election, I would go every Monday, and I was on CNN in the morning, and it just so happened this one day, Bill Nelson was the guest. <laughs> and um, everybody around me, was like, oh, you can, you know, you can get him now, you can get him now. And I said, I'm not gonna do that. He won, he won the election. He's, I, I'm going to refer to him as my Senator from Florida um, because I felt that responsibility that if you want, then the two sides have to find a way to come together. And he's a, he's a, he's a gentleman, he really is. Uh, so I hope that answers it. So I'm just going to agree with Connie and go to the final question uh, because there isn't any better answer than the way Connie conducted himself. I went to college with Bill Nelson too. It seems like everybody was at Yale. Yeah, you supported him. <laughs> <laughs> and I did give him money. <laughs> uh, but I felt a little bit guilty because I love this man so much. Uh, but. Uh, the well, big, if you want to make it even, I'll do that. <laughs> <laughs> my, my big hope for America is basically going to be my answer to the final, maybe the most important question for all of you taking so much time to listen to the two of us. And, and that is, what is American politics really all about is how Israel figured it out early, because most of Israel comes from somewhere else. And uh, to its detriment with the Palestinians, they're seen as aliens, and that's a large measure of the tension. Of course, they were there 3,000 years ago. My great, great, great forebears, we all come from the same uncle called Abraham. Muslims, Jews, Christians, we're all the same world. But Israel figured out, to answer your question, how do all of you get the kind of political clout you need to help your countries. That isn't just money. That's American public opinion caring about Africa and African countries, African culture, African people. Once the American people care, believe in a story, a narrative about your country, are attracted to it because of human beings they can identify with. There are average individual Americans who come from your countries. There are Jews and non-Jews, but mostly Jews, I happen to be of the Jewish faith, who look at Israel not as their homeland, we're Americans, we're not Israelis, but the way Italians look at Italy and the Irish look at Ireland, and probably people from your countries look at their home country. It's a place where there's a connection, a loyalty, a love. So I have a love for Israel, a pride in Israel, because I see my ancient ancestors connected. My father, my grandfather never been to Israel before. Uh, I finally went. So Israel figured it out because American Jews figured it out and they organized. Individual by individual, congressional district by congressional district, state by state, and they organized. And who did they go to? 
they went to their local member of Congress, individuals, then their senators. And then what did they do? They raised money. They went to parties. They were involved in their communities. They became community leaders. So members of Congress knew them, not at the national level, but from their home state, from their congressional district. Go to 535 members of Congress. They've heard from somebody back home who is pro-Israel. And that filters up and bubbles up, and it becomes clout. Now, you have a disadvantage because of the ancient history of Israel and American Jews. Uh, probably they've been doing this a much longer time than African uh, nationals who are here in America as Americans. But I know they're there. And I know that they can be mobilized to call their congressmen and call their senators. So that's number one lesson of the Israel Public Affairs Committee called APAC. But the second lesson, which is Connie and me talking to all of you, and then I really would like to turn it over to Connie. Because unlike Connie, I ran for office and lost. <laughs> he knows how to communicate and win. The second thing you need to do in Washington to have clout is tell your story. Tell it to the media. Tell it to members of Congress. Tell it to key columnists, editorial writers. Tell it to people back home on national television so they can see a feature about a human being in your country who's a success story. Tell your story and that will produce clout. That's what we do. It's a little bit of a pitch for for Levick. That's what I, have to, I can't resist. But if you don't choose us to tell your story, choose somebody. You have an organization here represented by you and all of you. You can collectively do this and then individually, you must, you can't do it collectively only, you must do it individually, country by country, person by person within your countries. But tell your story is my second half of how Israel, tells its story of how Israel was founded. The only democracy is a narrative that the American people love when they hear about Israel. Now Israel's lost that narrative in the last five to 10 years. They have allowed the Palestinian narrative in many places in America to dominate, which is the oppressed, people without a country, people who want justice. I, as a Democrat, have a lot of problems with fellow Democrats that the Palestinian narrative is now more powerful in certain places than the Israeli narrative. And Israel has failed to communicate. They've done their grassroots from APAC, but their communication has been a terrible failure in my opinion. I say that as a friend of Israel. So now, over to you, Connie, as final Because question. Israel is out, sorry, uh, because Israel is now uh, is out of arguments. That's the, the problem. It's not a problem of communication. It's about ar arguments. What are the arguments of Israel now being occupying another uh, other people's land? That's the problem. And, uh, you know, the aggressions, the daily aggressions, etc. So now I think the problem for Israel is not about communication, it's about policy and politics. Now Israel has to change. We are not anymore in the, in the middle of the uh, 50s of last, uh, of last century. We are in uh, the year 2015. And I don't think that the American people or any other people would accept this situation. They are the only, you know, 
people and the occupation. And it's about time now to turn the page and open another page. The uh, Arab, um, the Arab uh, reconciliation um, initiative is still on the table. It's up to the, uh, the Israelis to take it. Uh, for the last uh, like ten years, it, it's on the table of the of the Arabs, but. Uh, the, the Israelis, unfortunately, they turned their their heads about. I, I invite you to lunch, and you and I will continue the story. <laughs> I would love to. But you've heard that I am sympathetic to the notion of a two-state solution in Israel, and the Arabs have to change. But we'll have lunch, and I'll Let me just buy you. Yeah. <laughs> we'll do this real quick. Uh, how do you build political clout? Um, the the uh, APAC is a great example. So it's a, it's, you create a foundation, right? And you engage people from, I know, from Africa in that. That's why I was saying I wouldn't run from kind of the, the umbrella. The umbrella. Um, and everyone communicates the message, the story. Everyone in APAC communicates the same story the same when they go meet on the hill they have the same issues everyone is talking together when they leave there is no way that the congress could misinterpret what they what message they are delivering it is loud and clear um so okay so how do they do it they it's a foundation and they get people involved. They have a training program throughout APAC that recruits people, young people typically, mentors them, uh, and then that person and a new recruit and they mentor. So there's a constant flow of, of people who are actively taking part. I remember going to New York. Uh, I had a fundraiser there from a, a guy that I had met uh, who was a member of APAC, and he was so nervous. He, he was new. The first time he had done that, and then he came to the Hill, uh, and he was nervous, and he was nervous. But it was fantastic because he was engaged. So I think building an apparatus. Now, the other thing that that uh, APAC does and um, the Jewish community does is they contribute uh, pretty heavily to politics. Um, they, they contribute a lot. Uh, so that also builds a cloud. I, it would be silly not to mention that uh, if you're really having a, a discussion about how to, how to build cloud. Um, and the leadership at the top whether it is APAC and the times that Israel has been most successful is when the leadership of the APAC organization here and the leadership in Israel are on the same page. Yeah. And when they're not, that's when things kind of, um, but when they're all, all on the same page, it's very well organized. It is, a, it is an organization that believes, has a core mission and tells that narrative and recruits and drives that. It's, a, it's, a, it's almost a rite of passage. Uh, uh, and it's a wonderful thing. And the last thing I'll say, 
is uh, you've got to get members of Congress and the staff, and in some cases, maybe the staff is more important than the members, to come see your country. Uh, when I was uh, in college, uh, my father was taking a trip to Israel. I'd never been out of the, the country, and I went, and it changed my life. Uh, to, to watch and to see how people there were living and growing up and uh, see their daily lives, it, it affected me in a way that I cannot uh, articulate. It was so powerful. Um, the relationship with the Cuban people in my state is so personal and powerful for me because I worked for a guy, Kiko Villion, who came from Cuba uh, and um, because he wanted to flee and because he wanted an opportunity. And the stories that he's, you know, we've been sailing a lot, so we'd sit on the sailboat and he would tell me these stories and some of them you'd go, oh my God. And others you're like, wow, that's amazing. You know, that's amazing. So those stories, people getting there, that is what um, helps in build, building the cloud. So build an organization that's got a single message focus. Uh, that doesn't mean it has to be one message or only has one thing in the message. It could be a broader, uh, but a, a message that everyone's delivering. Get involved, as Lanny said, on the ground, in the districts, politically. If it's not money, it's knocking on doors, it's waving signs, it's being involved in the campaigns. It's, of showing up. Um, I would absolutely say that you should organize some sort of PAC uh, and uh, we do, we, that's what happens a lot of times and that's how you also build your cloud uh, and then get, get people to your countries. Can I, can I add just one, one word? There is a opportunity for there to be in the platforms of both the Republican and Democratic Party. Issues related to Africa, if they, you can come up with a collective recommendation on trade, for example, expanding trade, and getting them inserted into the platforms on the Democratic and Republican platforms, that serves as a very interesting way and a foundation for you to begin focusing on policy issues that are Africans African and Orient, and you have plenty of time to do that. Okay. Thank you very much, Mark, and thank you everyone for joining us and thank our speakers.